Well, good morning, church. Isn't it good to celebrate some of that together? Baptisms are always pretty awesome. I love hearing people's stories. Um, my name is Jamie Hargrave. Um, I've uh, been attending here um, at UDAC for uh, three or four years or so. Uh, in a previous life, um, I was a uh, pastor with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Now I, um, a layperson, and I uh, have the um, privilege of uh, working with um, a number of people in actually the engineering field now. And uh, yeah, um, this morning uh, I wanted, we've been talking, we've been working through the series on the name of God. And, and, and I wanted us to take a little bit of time and we're going to unpack one of God's names. That before we do that, Let's take a look back at what we've talked about. See, if we, if we understand God's names, we, we start to gain a deeper understanding of who God actually is. We understand a little bit more about his character, about some of his attributes, about his, his personality and, and the ways and the ways in which he interacts with us as human beings. And over the past couple of weeks, we've, we've studied God's names. We've studied uh, El Shaddai, the Almighty God. We've looked at El Roy, the God who sees, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. We've um, talked about Jesus as the Word and Emmanuel, which is God come to earth. And this week, this week what I'd like to talk about is uh, God's, God's name of Jehovah Sidkeno, which is translated, it's Hebrew, and it translates the Lord our righteousness. It's a Hebrew word that occurs two times in the Old Testament, both times it's in, in the book of Jeremiah. And this morning, what we're going to be looking at is out of Jeremiah chapter 33 and verses 14 through 18. Now, a little bit of background before we go there. Uh, Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, this is during the time of there was two kingdoms um, after Solomon and the kingdoms, kingdom of Israel split and Israel the north and, and Judah the south. And Israel has already been carried up into captivity by the Assyrians. And now it is just God's people, it's just um, Judah. And, and, the, and the Babylonians have laid siege to Jerusalem. And the reason for this, the reason that this is actually happening, we find um, just a, a couple of verses earlier in Jeremiah chapter 32. Uh, and I'm just going to read a couple of those just to kind of lay the groundwork for the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. So Jeremiah 32, um, verses 30 through 35. The people of Israel and Judah, this is God speaking, the people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, they turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to my discipline. And, and he goes on a little bit more in that theme. And, and this is a theme that keeps coming up in, in the prophets over and over and over, is that God's people, the, the people that God had, had chosen, had called out of Egypt, out of captivity and, and, and slavery in Egypt and um, the, the book of Exodus and, and through the desert and kind of formed them into, into his people and gave them 
the land in which they lived and, and said, this is yours. It was, he made a promise to Abraham that it was going to be Abraham's offspring's land. And, and God said, this is yours. You just need to follow me and obey me. But over and over and over again, as we, we read the Bible in the Old Testament, we see God's people failing and turning their backs on him and, and choosing sin over and over. And into this situation where God is saying, that's it, I am done. I am going to remove this from my sight. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. And the Babylonians are, um, uh, have laid siege to Jerusalem. God speaks through Jeremiah, and he speaks these words in chapter 33. Um, starting in verse 14, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. God says, I made a promise, and I'm going to fulfill it. And, and the promise that God made, he made this promise to the nation of Israel during the exodus from Egypt. And, and we're, we're not going to go there, but if you were to look back and you read Deuteronomy chapter 28, God makes this promise through Moses. As, as Moses gives the instructions to the Israelites before they were going to cross the Jordan River into the land God had promised Abraham would be for Abraham's descendants. And at this time, through Moses, God promises that if they would obey him and they would carefully follow his commands, that he would bless them. He says, I will set you high above all other nations, that everything you do and everything you own, everything that you have will be blessed. And then he says, and you will be a holy people, which is to be a people set apart, so people who are different, people set apart for God. And that didn't work out. They were never obedient. Their hearts were never fully committed to God, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 32. And God continually punishes them, but calls them back into obedience with him. By all outward appearances, this promise that God has made doesn't look like it's going to be fulfilled. The Babylonians are outside the gates. It's just a matter of time before Jerusalem is going to fall. But God knew that they would never be able to live up to the standards that he had. He, he, he knows us as people. He created us. He made us. And he's known us as human beings since... Well, since he created the first ones, right, in, in, in the book of Genesis. And, and even them, he, then, he knew that we would never be able to live up righteously um, on our own strength. And so to fulfill this promise that God made, he says in verse 15, I will make a righteous branch. I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. Now, to understand what that is, we, we should probably flip back into the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. We'll just read a couple of verses from this. In Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah uh, says this, A shoot will come up from the stump 
of Jesse. So from, from a stump, it will be a little branch starting to grow up. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but will, with righteousness will he judge the needy. With justice will he give decisions to the poor or of the earth. And then it goes on more in that theme. But this is the promise that God made to fulfill the promise that he'd made. See, he knew, I, I, I'm going to bless you if you will obey me, and, and all these wonderful things will happen, but, but he knew they would never be able to obey. And so he says, I will make a provision. And, and this provision is this promised Messiah. And if we go on and we're to study Isaiah chapter 11, we would see that this, this, this promise here points towards Jesus. And he promises that from the root, from the stump of Jesse, Jesse was David's father, from the stump of Jesse, from David's line, there will always be a king. This this had appeared to be a failed promise as well. See, in Jeremiah, um, we um, flip forward into Jeremiah chapter 52, Zedekiah is the last king of Israel, the last king of Judah, sorry. He is the last king in David's line. And he's captured. We, we, we read this and we know the story, and, and he's captured by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians actually killed all of his sons in front of him. And then they put his eyes out, and then they took him off to captivity in Babylon. See, at this point, David's line becomes a stump. It gets cut off. A tree which has been cut down and seemingly won't bear fruit. But the promise on Isaiah is that this stump is going to produce a branch. And this branch is the one that Jeremiah is referring to, that I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. He says, in, goes on in verse 17 and 18, um, and this, this promise is that David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel, and that the Levites will never cease to have someone sacrificing. Now, this is really significant as well, because the Levites, well, they were the priests. They were the, and, and the priest's job was to be the mediator, the go-between between, between uh, humans and, and God. And they were to offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And, and he says in, in verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 18, there will never fail to be a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. He says, Jeremiah says, the prophecy is, that there will never be somebody, or there will never cease to be somebody who will not be making burnt offerings, which is sin offerings, grain offerings, which are a praise offering, um, something given to God as an expression of worship. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it says that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who stands before God as the great high priest, the one who continually makes the sacrifices on our behalf. And he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, if we look back, right, we know that Jesus comes from the line of David. We know that Jesus is the great high priest. And Jesus is the fulfillment 
of this prophecy, that God's people will be known by the name, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, as we take that idea and we know that the Lord, our righteousness, and we take the idea of Jesus as the fulfillment of that, we then can step into the New Testament and we can start to understand what this means for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's people become the righteousness of God, which is the exact thing that is prophesied in Jeremiah, that we would be known by the name God, our righteousness. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains how this happens. He says, speaking of Jesus, he says that God makes Jesus to become sin on our behalf. He imputes, he takes our sins and, 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 and imputes it to Jesus. And in that exchange, we in turn, are imputed with the righteousness of God. And this is what happens at the cross. The sin equals death and separation from God. That is the result of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the beginning, God says, we probably all know the story, don't eat the fruit from this tree or you will surely Sorry, you will surely die. Death is the result of disobedience. Death is the result of straying away from the standards that God has set. Death is the result of sin. And so um, Adam and Eve eat the sin anyway, and it results in, in death. It results in a curse. And the curse is that now human beings will die, and they will also be separated from God. They get kicked out of the garden. They get kicked out of that close-knit fellowship relationship that they had with God. And the Israelites knew this. And they lived in a system that the Israelites and the Jews that we've read about and talked about in Jeremiah, they knew this and they lived in a, in, in, in a thing that had a sacrificial system. And in this sacrificial system, they had to make a sin offering. Something had to die to pay the sin price, because the sin price is death. And, and so they, they had this symbolic representation of that, and they would, they would sacrifice an animal as a representation or, or, or symbolic thing that would take their sin, and it, that, that this, their sin would transfer onto the animal, and the animal would pay the price. But it can't, because we're humans, and they are humans. Animals can't take that. And so... They're, 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 they, they looked forward and they had this idea that, that sin equals death and this death needs to be transferred onto something else. And they also had this idea, they had this understanding of separation from God. See, the Jewish tabernacle and the temple um, had this place called the Holy of Holies. And that's the place where, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God dwelt. And in Ezekiel, or Exodus, sorry, chapter 26, verse 21, it says that this holy of holies is to be separated 
from the rest of the temple or the tabernacle, tabernacle is like the traveling version of the temple, um, by, by a curtain. And then in Leviticus chapter 16, it says that the high priest cannot go into the Holy of Holies whenever he wants, that God is present there, and if the high priest was to go in there, he would die. Because human beings who are sinful cannot go into the presence of God without dying. And so they made a series of sin offerings and ritual cleansings, and then the high priest could go in once a year on behalf of the rest of the people. And these things are because God is holy and sin cannot be in his presence, and yet he also loves people and desires relationship. And so there's this looking forward to this. God is holy, and he says, you will die if you enter into my presence, but, but we've made a, I'm, I'm making a provision, and all of these provisions that the Jews and the people of Israel knew were looking forward. He said, we're going to give animals as sacrifices, but the animals never really dealt with the sin. And so these things look forward to Jesus. And God sends Jesus, as Paul says, to be the sin offering for humans. This fulfillment of this is seen in Matthew. Um, and while on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that cry, Jesus, fully God, fully man, is separated from his Father. God himself, the three in one, which the Bible teaches, the Trinity, God Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is separated from himself. And Jesus, for the first time ever, knows doesn't know the presence of his father. And he cries out in anguish. In the song by Stuart Townsend, How Deep the Father's Love, there's a line It says this, the father turns his face away. And that's what happened. God made him who had no sin be sin for us. The exchange that was symbolic in the Old Testament becomes actual reality. And Jesus carries the sins of all of humanity to the cross and then takes the consequences of those sins, which is separation from God and death, takes them upon himself. And if we're to keep reading in Matthew, at that point, at that moment in time, the curtain, that thing that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple where you couldn't go, otherwise you'd die, is torn in half from top to bottom. And in Jesus' death, God's holiness, his righteousness, his I cannot bear sin, and his love are satisfied together. And in this, at this point, we find the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. God's promise to his people that God himself would become our righteousness. That an exchange happens, that we receive the righteousness of God as he receives our sin. Not that Jesus committed the sins, but that he took the punishment. Not that we are actually righteous, but God sees us as having a righteousness from him.
this righteousness, this righteousness of God, costs Jesus his life and separates God from himself. And it is offered free to us. And yet in this freedom, there comes a cost. And to receive the righteousness of God, to know God as our righteousness, humility is the cost. Of every religion on the earth, Christianity is the only one, the only one that says you cannot do something to get yourself in God's good books. You are incapable. We as human beings cannot do anything to get us back into relationship with God. See, there's humility in this. And that's the cost of the righteousness of God, is accepting that something was done for us and that we have not and we cannot do anything to deserve that. Righteousness is not found in us becoming better people. It's not found in figuring out how to become good enough to please God or, or getting enough gold stars because, well, I, I actually, my, my balance is I behave better overall than I behave badly. It's not found in that. That's not where righteousness comes from. It's found in the work of Jesus on the cross, his death in our place, in taking our sins for himself, and in that imputing his righteousness to us. This means that nothing we can do can draw us into that relationship with God. Nothing that we can do can get us into heaven. We bring absolutely nothing to the table that can deal with our sins. It is completely God's work. And we don't like this as people, if we're honest. We try to fix the problems we create. That's what we want to do. It seems like it's wired into us, that we want to pay for the things that we have broken, and we expect others to do the same thing. But God's way is different than that. It's that we, based simply on accepting it by faith, by trusting that Jesus did this, receive a righteousness from God. And John Stott describes this as the scandal, the stumbling block of the cross. That the only way we can receive this righteousness is through humility acknowledging our complete dependence upon God. Now, if you ask me if I was a proud person, I'd say, no, I'm not. I know, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know all this, this theological truth. I know that I am fully dependent upon God to be my righteousness. But yet, if you put your finger on the sin in my life and call it out, I will get defensive. I might, I might not verbalize it. I might verbalize it but I might not verbalize it, but inside, down in my heart, something goes, and twists. I want to justify my sin. I want to excuse myself. And the reason I want to do that is because I'm proud. I don't like being wrong. I hate it. I hate being corrected. I hate having my feelings pointed out. I say the right words that, you know, I want to grow, then I, if I want to grow, I need to, need to acknowledge and see my sin and, and all of those things. But inside, my pride makes me angry, makes me self-justifying, makes me unwilling to do what I need to do. I wonder if you're all a little bit like me. 
See, Jehovah said, Keno, the Lord, our righteousness, challenges us. It challenges us. It puts a finger on part of our life and says, will you be humble or are you going to be proud? Are you going to say, no, 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 I can do it on my own, God, or I can do part of it at least. I can work my way partly towards you. And God says, no, that's not my name. My name is the Lord is your righteousness. My name is your righteousness. It challenges us to humility. And in that challenge to humility, I think there's two things that kind of come out of that. Is one, it should probably affect our relationships, our relationship with God, which we talked about, but it should probably affect our relationships with people. Because if I carry no righteousness of my own, how dare I look down on somebody else? Because I'm a sinner just like them. It doesn't matter how good I am, how long I've been going to church, any of that. I am a sinner, and the only way I have righteousness is through the cross. So it challenges us to be humble in our relationships with people. But the the other thing, if I can't be righteous on my own strength, God did it for me. God did it for you. He loved you. He loved me enough to be separated from himself, to take the punishment of sin, sin that he didn't commit, so that we could be righteous, so that we could enter into relationship with him. And that, that is worth praising. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. challenges each of us to humility in accepting that it's someone else, it's in fact God who is our righteousness.